Most Unforgettable Characters 2. Undefeated Mrs. Bell by Jack Kersick My first conversation with Mrs. Bell took place early one summer morning. I was sitting on the curb crying as only a heartbroken eight-year-old boy can when she came by on some errand. In Chicago's factory-filled South Side, where I grew up in the early 1900s, Mrs. Bell was a familiar little figure. She wore a tiny black hat atop her silvery hair and a short black cape over her trim black dress. It was her eyes, though, that you remembered. They were bright blue, and they shone with the warm understanding that had come with seventy-odd years of seeing life. Not as she thought it ought to be, perhaps, but with the way it really was. Between sobs, I answered her questions. The evening before, another boy had given me an old bicycle. The mud guards were gone, and the tires were patched with tape, and the paint job was ancient, but to me the bicycle was beautiful, and I couldn't wait to ride it. At daylight, I raced downstairs to where I had hidden it under the porch. It was gone, stolen. Do you have any idea who might have taken it? Mrs. Bell asked. I told her that a boy named Paul had tried to take it away from me. I don't believe I know Paul, she said, but let us go and see him. I led her past the factories and grimy cottages which constituted our part of Chicago to the weather-beaten little house where Paul lived. Its porch sagged, its paint peeled, but it had that unassailable dignity which newly washed windows and fresh white curtains can impart. Beds of small flowers carpeted the center of the yard, and the fence was lined as well. "'I'm glad we have seen the yard,' Mrs. Bell said almost to herself. "'Now we know that these are good people. Bad people can't grow flowers like these.' The basement door was partly open. Inside, against a post, stood my bicycle. I started down the stairs. Wait, said Mrs. Bell. I looked up to see Paul's mother on the porch. Paul was behind her. We were admiring your flowers, Mrs. Bell remarked cheerfully. The woman smiled pleasantly. Take some if you want. We always have so many. Not just now, thanks. We stopped by to fetch this boy's bicycle. Paul borrowed it, and I guess he forgot to bring it back. Paul looked very unhappy. Why didn't you return it? his mother asked. You know better. I forgot, I guess, Paul replied, looking at his shoes. It's in the basement. I'll get it. When he returned, Mrs. Bell said, You ought to have a bicycle of your own, Paul. It's so hard for us to get extra things, the mother explained. We never seem to have a cent left over. Mrs. Bell nodded knowingly. Maybe you could earn some money of your own, Paul, she said. I have a little business. I make and sell horseradish sauce. If you'd like to help me, perhaps I could get you a second-hand bicycle this afternoon. You can pay me back a little at a time and you will have more fun out of a bicycle you earn yourself. What do you say? Paul didn't say anything. He couldn't. But you could tell he intended to help Mrs. Bell. As we walked home, the bicycle between us, Mrs. Bell said, 
Paul wasn't really stealing, son. You must never think that. Not means stealing, anyway. It's only that he wants a bicycle as much as you do, and he went about it the wrong way. Mrs. Bell had come to live in our neighborhood as a bride. Now she was a widow living on a small income, plus what she earned from her business. With her little basket under her arm, it had no handle. She would call on maybe four families a day. When she came, the women of the house dropped everything, made her a cup of tea, and sat down for an hour or so to talk. Mrs. Bell never mentioned the horseradish. If a housewife asked her to sell a bottle, she would oblige. But you had to ask her. It was Mrs. Bell's business that brought her into people's homes. It was what she did for her neighborhood that kept her in their hearts. One of Mrs. Bell's customers was Mrs. Carmody. Whenever Mrs. Bell came to visit, Mrs. Carmody always apologized for her parlor easy chair, the only one she had for guests. After twenty-five years, its cushion sagged, and its faded upholstery gave but a hint of its once robust burgundy. One day during a winter, when the family was in a bad financial condition. Mrs. Bell stopped for a visit. It was just before Christmas, but the Carmodys were trying hard not to think about that. Mrs. Bell had great news, she said, for Mrs. Carmody. She had run across a woman who paid handsome prices for antique chairs. Ed, the liveryman, would come for the easy chair that afternoon, and Mrs. Bell would return the next day with the money, twenty dollars. Maybe even twenty-five. Ed came for the chair. Mrs. Bell came with the money. Christmas came. All was well, but the chair was still in Ed's livery stable. Years later, there was a striking adaptability about Mrs. Bell. Time and again, I saw her playing jacks with little girls, or she would sit down in the grass and play mumbly peg with us boys. But when she talked with old people, she was one of them. She seemed to be just the person who needed to be, at a given time. When Fred Corey, who had five children, lost his job as a switchman, Mrs. Bell went around to talk with him. Because of heavy fog, Fred had failed to see another switchman's signal. He said, and there had been an accident—a box car smashed. He had tried to explain, but his boss had been unreasonable. Next day, Mrs. Bell called on the president of the railroad. A few days later, Fred was reinstated. His gratitude knew no bounds. The president himself, he said to Mrs. Bell, "Whatever made you go to him?" "Well," she replied, "you told me that your boss was an unreasonable man. I felt pretty sure the president wouldn't be." I've been around some seventy years, you see, and I know that unreasonable men seldom get to be president of a railroad, or of anything else. An amused little smile crossed her face. He made quite a fuss over me. A roustabout whom we came to know only as Bill turned up in the neighborhood one day. He earned himself a basement cot by helping a janitor. And for ready money, all of which went for drink, he 
He washed windows and chopped wood, although Bill talked little, and never about himself. He and Mrs. Bell became friends. When a little girl named Mary was taken sick, Bill asked Mrs. Bell regularly how the child felt, and what the doctor said the trouble was. When he learned the diagnosis had been pneumonia, he shook his head in disagreement, for two weeks had passed without a crisis. One day, Mrs. Bell said, "'Why don't you go see her, Bill? Mary's a friend of yours, and you might be able to help her.' The old lady handed him a dollar. "'Go to the barber and clean up a little. I'll wait for you at my house.' At the bedside, Bill, sober, clean-shaven, and gently lifted the little fever-racked child's eyelids, studied each eye intently, and then laid his calloused hand on her forehead. He examined her chest and back. He asked only one question. Does the back of your neck hurt, Mary? The child nodded. Mrs. Bell and Mary's mother followed him out into the room. There's no pneumonia there, he said. It looks like meningitis. I'll give you the name of a specialist. Get him quick. The specialist confirmed Bill's diagnosis, and Mary was taken to the hospital, where she recovered. Bill stayed in our neighborhood a few weeks. When he left, he was wearing new clothes and carried a handsome suit. Someone asked Mrs. Bell how she knew Bill was a doctor. The child's illness was the only thing I ever mentioned to him that really roused his interest, she said. He asked questions that only a doctor would ask. Later he told me that when he was a, in practice as a doctor, he made a mistake that almost cost a patient his life. Then he became the man we knew. I guess Mary's doctor and I convinced him that a man doesn't qu quit his profession just because he makes a mistake. And anyway, he made up for his mistake. He's gone back to his work and his people. There was considerable truancy among the children of foreign-born parents in our neighborhood, for a reason that Mrs. Bell soon figured out. Since English was almost never spoken in their homes, the children couldn't get the help they needed with their homework, so they played hooky rather than face the consequences. One school day, Mrs. Bell saw some boys playing in the park. Go to school, she told them. Then come to my house with your homework after school. At first, only a few came. But as Mrs. Bell's reputation grew, they were often a dozen boys at her house. Not all of them of foreign parents. This led to the establishment of what we used to call Mrs. Bell's Saturday School. From nine until noon each Saturday, she dealt with the more horrific aspects of fractions, parsing and pronunciations, but in a general way. Mrs. Bell set no penalty for failure. It's like learning to swim, she would say. Keep trying, and all of a sudden you can do it. Mrs. Bell's greatest strength, I believe, lay in her utterly unbounded faith in God and in herself. Never was this better shown than the time she averted a potential tragedy involving Gabe, a man of about forty, six feet tall and rugged, but with the mind of a child. Everyone in the neighborhood knew him. 
He was amiable and harmless, and often he would carry Mrs. Bell's basket for her on her rounds. Occasionally, Gabe would ask to play ball with the boys. He really didn't grasp the game, but sometimes they let him play anyway. One day a boy, who should have known better, shouted, "'You can't play with us! You're crazy!' Before the rest of us had a chance to realize what the boy had said, Gabe threw three of the youngsters to the ground. Too terrified to run, we watched Gabe pick up the bat, then back off until he stood against the firehouse wall. A crowd began to gather. No one spoke. No one knew what to do. It seemed suicidal to try to disarm the angry, mentally disabled man. The police came, and one of them drew his revolver. "'Drop that bat, Gabe, and come over here,' he shouted. Gabe didn't move. The little drama was quickly reaching an ugly Im impasse. Then Mrs. Bell stepped out of the crowd. There was nothing in her manner that suggested she was doing anything courageous or even unusual. With her little basket held out before her, she walked straight up to Gabe, her eyes never leaving him. When she stood before him, looking up into his face, she said simply, "'Will you carry my basket for me, Gabe?' Gabe, smiling, dropped the bat, took the basket, and they walked away together. Later, when someone spoke wonderingly to Mrs. Bell of this episode, she said, "'I knew the Lord never intended Gabe harm anyone.'" Mrs. Bell was with us until she was eighty-one. I went to see her one day during her finer illness. She was wearing a white quilted bed jacket with little pink flowers worked on it, small ones, just the right size for her, and a tiny lace cap floated on top of her silvery hair. I said, You look very well for a person who is sick. You must have a good doctor. I have, she said, but it's not only the doctor. It's all the good people who come to see me. Their kindness helps me. There's no time in life when a person doesn't need a little perking up. Then Mrs. Bell smiled and said, I recall one morning, many years ago, when you badly needed some perking up. Someone had just stolen your bicycle, remember? I remembered, and I still do. Lady Chimney Sweep by Rumor Godin most of the cottages in our village in Buckinghamshire, England, have deep fireplaces with old-fashioned iron basket grates that burns big logs and makes a lot of soot. The roofs are thatch, which catches fire easily. This means that the chimneys must be swept twice a year. A few people clean their chimneys with whiz-bangs, terrifying little contraptions, that are lit and thrown up the chimney where they are supposedly to explode and bring down the soot. A few others have the vacuum chimney sweep from the market town, but the village, the real village, has Mrs. Abel. She is one of the few women chimney sweeps in England. When I first knew her, I thought that remarkable enough, but after fifteen years, I have not yet come to the end of the remarkableness of Mrs. Abel. The day the sweep comes in, in most English houses, a dreaded day, the furniture has to be sheeted, carpets rolled up, curtains and pictures taken down. Mrs. Abel would be offended if we did anything like that. I make no mess, she says, nor does she. 
All we do is turn the carpets back from the hearth and spread a newspaper there. But that is only for her to put the gear on. Punctually at half past seven, Mrs. Abel wheels her bicycle in at the gate. She is good looking and surprisingly small for her work. She's stocky and firm boned. Her hands are firm too and strong. They are gentle as well. I have seen them plant a seedling and warm a day old chick. Her face is browned from her long journeys over these cold hills, but her skin, where her neck goes down into her shoulders, is fine and creamy and soft. Her hair, which is brown, is tied up in a kerchief, and her face and forehead are smudged with soot, and her hands are black. It's from putting the brushes on the bike, she says. Her eyes look like a collier's do, their whites startling the grime, but when you are accustomed to that, you see the deep blueness of them and something in them that can only be described as zest. Her eyes are as responsive as a child's. She is what she herself would call a terrible talker, and before she begins to sweep, we have her hear all the gossip over a cup of tea. Hers isn't just gossip about people. It is of animals, gardens, houses, furniture, china, and recipes. Mrs. Gilroy has bought a table that would just go with your clock, she tells me. It has the same little cupids on the inlay. I am sure it's Louis the fifteenth too. For when Mrs. Abel goes into people's houses, she notices things. That's why I don't like everything covered up, she says, and she asks questions and remembers the answers. A Parisian carpet, Adam fireplace, a genuine old Windsor chair. She can talk about them all. And here's the recipe for the apple jelly that's so good. Miss Reddy wrote it out for you. It's in my pocket here, but you must take it out. I won't touch it. I'll make it black. I don't know Mrs. Gilroy or Miss Reddy, but I shan't be surprised if I soon do. It is like a weaving with Mrs. Abel as she shuttles. We are drawn closer together and become more neighborly, and we won't be disappointed. What Mrs. Abel tells you is true. The table is Louis the Fifteenth, and the apple jelly is good. Sweeping is hard work for a woman. First rods and brushes and bags have to be carried in, and then the heavy canvas bags are fitted over the fireplace to catch the falling soot. A slit is left between them through which the sweep has to work. The brass-ended rods are of cane, about four feet long. They screw together, and they are cane so that they will bend to fit a chimney that is curved. The brush is fitted to the first rod, and that is pushed up the chimney. Then the next rod goes into the end of the first, and so on. Each length pushes the brush further up, while all of the time it is dexterously twirled and turned, its stiff bristles moving against the sides of the chimney to scrape the congealed soot which falls in a continuous heavy shower. This goes on till the brush reaches the chimney pot where a final and vigorous working is needed, 
and Mrs. Abel shouts to the children to run into the garden and see the brush come out of the top. The rods as they lengthen are heavy. It takes skill and strength to get the right play on them and patience to work the brushes all around the chimney sides. It sometimes takes 14 rods fitted together to reach the top of the three-floored house, and each fitting has to be done in the dark, the sweep's hands feeling through the slit between the bag. A careless sweep sometimes loses his brush by getting it wedged against the brickwork, but good ones like Mrs. Abel have a cord tied to the brush so that if it sticks and comes away from the handle it can be pulled down. The soot is caught in a heavy black load in the bags. Then the rods are withdrawn length by length and unscrewed. The flue and the chimney back are brushed out and the bags closed and gathered up and the work is over. With soot and heavy implements and dirty bags it is easy for a sweep to make a great mess. Most sweeps do. A man's big movements send the suit flying. I think Mrs. Abel is so clean because she is deft and strong. She also has good balance. She never needs to put out a hand. On the white paint, perhaps, to steady herself. Above all, she treats her sweeping as a serious art. She never talks when she works. If you ask her how she came to be a sweep, she will tell you. Well, there was the sitting room full of smoke. No one would do anything. She was a kitchen maid then, and one of our big manor houses out here. Her voice is indignant. There were the two old people being kippered as they sat, so I borrowed some equipment and swept the whole blooming chimney. A perfect wretch it was, too. When the people opposite saw the brush come out at the top, they came across and begged me to do theirs, and somebody else, and somebody else after that. Soon I was sweeping for five miles around. That, too, is how she came into her other kind of work. She helps at it once, and then people begin to ask for more. We don't speak about Mrs. Abel's other work. It is too intimate. At any time of day, even when she is just sitting out with her rods, or has just come in, or sometimes in the middle of the night, someone will come to her. She is the village layer out of the dead, and very gently, scrupulously, and well, she does it. For that work she must be spotless. Don't you get the horrors? I once heard someone ask her with a dreadful curiosity. Mrs. Abel, who was, has a way of seeing straight and simply, It's only another kind of cleaning up, she said. In the country it is an honored calling and carries certain other duties with it. To help at the funeral tea, for instance, to be present at the closing of the coffin, to arrange the family's wreaths. If there are thirteen mourners, to walk in the funeral procession, to make a fourteenth, and break the bad luck. I once asked her what her religion was. I thought she must have some special way of getting the strength for all she does. I was right, but she did not know how to put it. I'm strong church, she said, and I'm a silent prayer woman. Her husband is a railway porter. The children are June, 
who is grown up and married, and Michael, who is six. They live in a pebble-wash villa. I was disappointed when I first saw it. I had somehow expected Mrs. Abel to live in a picturesque old cottage. I couldn't do with all that thatch, she said. Her house has three rooms up and three down, and tiled kitchen and a bathroom, which she is very proud. Many of the village houses have no bathroom at all, and some are even without water. Mrs. Abel repairs and paints the house herself, and it is no ordinary painting. She goes in, as she says, for schemes. The best room, seldom used, is buff and tomato, and the living room is apple green, the kitchen a useful chocolate brown. I did it all, she says with pride. She wired the house herself, too. Behind the house is a chicken run, where she rears black leghorns, table birds, she says. There isn't a bird or fish I can't clean and dress. Funny, dirty sort of gifts I've got. A country woman's gift for fundamental things. This does not mean she is not interested in the world's affairs. She is very much. But here she does not talk. She listens. When our general election was on, she would not tell anybody for whom she voted. She entertained all the canvassers impartially. And I never let on, she says, could have had three cars call for me on polling day. And which will you take? I asked slyly. I walked, said Mrs. Abel. When she was finished sweeping, she always asked, you for your own sack for the soot. You don't want me to take the soot away, she says, shocked. You need it for your garden. Her own garden is made out of other people's. Spring and autumn, what Mrs. Abel calls setting times, are her busy season, and she seldom goes home without a root or cuttings. The next time she comes, even if she is six months later, she won't forget to bring something from her garden in exchange. I have often seen her looking longingly at the big piano in our drawing-room. Pity I come here so dirty, she says. Should love to have a go at it. She once showed me her piano. It is one of those uprights with brass candlesticks and a front of fretted wood over pleated silk. It dates to 1852, and it belonged to her grandmother. Mrs. Abel can play any tune you like, or that you can whistle or sing to her. She has never had any lessons, but she plays at weddings, at children's parties, and church socials anywhere, and then no one would guess she was a chimney sweep. I was a pretty girl, she says, and she keeps herself pretty still. I remember one morning when she looked up from the soot and said, I shall have to be quick. I'm having a perm at half-past ten. That is the only time I have known her to hurry. Usually she manages to put by more time for talk. And what expansive talk. It's like saying your prayers backwards, she says, if events are thoroughly out of order. Or she will look at a stormy sky and say, There's malice in the sky, and there'll be a tempest. At last she's ready to go, and I pay her. I've had to put my price up a shilling, 
she says sadly. It comes to a terrible lot. It comes to ten shillings of four, a dollar forty. Ten shillings for peddling four miles out, doing two hours hard and skillful work, and then four miles back. She puts the money in her purse, stows it under the overalls, and wheels her bicycle through the gate. Take care not to touch the white posts with her brush. Well, goodbye, she says. I have enjoyed myself. And she's off. She will tell Mrs. Gilroy about my clock and give Miss Reddy the recipe I have sent her for bacon pie. She will have all our news, and she has taken a crown of new peony. Bola beauty, as she calls it, a single deep rose color and scented. Behind her she leaves such a sense of well-being that the house seems radiant. An odd word, perhaps, for chimney-sweeping, but not if it's the homely, warm radiance of firelight, for instance. She has left our chimney so clean that our fires will be bright and cheery all winter long. She rides off along the lane, brush rods, bags, handkerchief, and overalls. See you in the spring, she calls. We shall look forward to that.